Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. What if you are pages away from a more inspired life, whether it's meditation or a walk in nature, reading a sacred text or saying a prayer? There are many ways that we can tap into a heightened awareness of the world that is around us and find our own place within it. My guest today is a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Lisa Miller, and I first heard of Dr. Lisa Miller's and her work uh, on the Rich Roll podcast. You can go and check that out. I'll link it below for you guys. But she is a New York Times bestselling author of the book, The Spiritual Child, which you can go and also uh, get a copy of that as well. She has a brand new book out, which is called The Awakened Brain. Uh, It's an amazing read. Honestly, you should go and definitely get a copy of it. But more, Dr. Lisa Miller is the New York Times bestselling author of, like I said, The Spiritual Child. And she's also a professor in the clinical psychology program at Teachers College, Columbia University. She's a founder and director of the Spiritual Spirituality Mind Body Institute, the first Ivy League graduate program and research institute in spirituality and psychology, believe it or not. And she's also held uh, over a decade of joint appointments in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical School. Her innovative research has been published in more than 100 peer-reviewed articles in leading journals, including Cerebral Cortex, the American Journal of Psychiatry, and the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry too. Uh, and what's more is Dr. Lisa Miller is honestly an amazing human being to speak to. I had so much much fun during this conversation and there is a lot to this conversation. I think you guys are going to get a lot out of it. Uh, The neuroscience of spirituality, that is a very interesting aspect to it. Uh, Psychology and spirituality, how that all plays uh, a part with our health, our overall health. But uh, if you do get something from this conversation, please do share it around to your friends and family. Let everyone know about this one. 
greatly appreciate you guys for continuing to come back. And I hope that these conversations are helping to build your awareness of life and helping you to unlock the abilities to share your own story. You feel encouraged, inspired, motivated, challenged in some way. Um, and that you guys get to, to learn some new and amazing things you didn't know before. But speaking of health, uh, I have teamed up with the wonderful Mary Ruth Organics team. Uh, Mary Ruth is a good friend of mine. She's an amazing human. Uh, to bring to you guys uh, a very special offer. So if you go to maryruthorganics.com, they have a wide selection of health-based products that are going to boost your immune system, boost your cognitive levels, the whole bit. I say go wild on there because there's so many amazing things on there. My favorites are the vitamin C gummies and the immune booster gummies. And I also use the ultra digestive enzymes uh, to help with uh, food digestion because I ruined my gut all those years ago. Long story. But anyway, if you go to maryruthorganics.com, I'll link everything in the show notes below and you use discount code J15, that is J15, you'll get 15% off your order. So like I said, go wild and help and help yourself pretty much take care of your own health by doing something good for it by getting these incredible products. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other then Dr. Lisa Miller. It's fantastic to be here. I love your style. So let's jump in. Thank you so much for being here. I love your work. So I think it's going to make for a much easier conversation for me. Uh, the very first question that I do have for you is a question that I love starting off all my conversations with, which is what does success look like for you? So success for me would be fulfilling the plan, the path, um, the possibility that who I call God, you may have your own word, whether it's the universe or the force in life or Jesus or Allah or Shem, but who I call God um, might have for me. So I don't know what that will look like and I don't know what it entails. And I don't know if I'm going to live, thrive or die through it. But I know that if I fulfill this path, that I can, in my deep inner wisdom, feel and know to be true, then I've realized what I might call success. When was the moment for you along your journey that you realized this, in fact, was success? Has it been this gradual thing for you over the course of your life? Or was there more of a catalyst moment for you that one day you just realized that you woke up and said, that's it? So like all people, I was a very spiritual child. Every child is a spiritual child. But I would say that 98% of what comes our way in childhood and center-filled culture can sort of silence that or even rub it out. Mm -hmm. But in my case, I had a very, very spiritual mother and lived in a community of people who spoke in terms of the sacred, the transcendent, who saw each other as, if you will, children's of children of God, beings of infinite worth, souls on earth, whatever your language is. So as a child, it felt to me that the best thing we could do is fill out our path, our, our sacred path, what God has in store for us. I knew that as a very young child. 
when I got to college, I'd been sufficiently well educated in our Western Western system that I had all but forgotten it. And I started to fall into a very deep depression, wondering what is my meaning? What is my purpose? And so I looked where many people in the years of college look. I looked in philosophy and I read Nietzsche and I thought, oh my, what if there really is no purpose? And then I read The Existentialist and I thought, there really very well might be no meaning in life at all. And I got really depressed. And at that point, had you asked me what success was, I didn't know, but just about every model around me when I was in university was about outward achievement, whether it was money or being well respected for your academic contribution or being famous, whatever that outward thing was, um, was really the currency of, of my time. And it really felt bad. It really felt like no matter how much fame, money, notoriety, contribution one gave, it wouldn't be enough because there's always someone bigger. And it always felt empty that it was really, um, you know, sort of being a little over impressed by our own might as humans. And so I got so depressed living in this world of outcome that I literally, it was intolerable. I would go, you know, 19, 20 years old, I'd go into the basement of the university and I'd buy the hot water heater where it was like warm on a cold New Haven day. I would start to think, hey, you know, is there God? And if there is God, then what does God want from me? And round and round I went um, until basically I broke free of university in the summertime, went out into nature um, and seeing light upon the water and meeting good folk who didn't ask, does life have meaning, but instead just loved each other and did good things for each other. The natural spirituality of my childhood was rekindled. And I was able to say once again, yeah, I'm surrounded by outcome. I'm surrounded by hunger for money, fame, outward success. But I know deep in my inner heart that what I want is to serve the highest purpose. I love that answer because I can relate to quite a bit of it, especially even though I'm still quite a young person. I think growing up, I was born and raised in a Christian household. So there was a spiritual element to my household. Uh, and I knew from a very young age of that spirituality, of, of that creator, of, of who I call God in my life. And I was very aware of that. And But then as life went on for me and as, I guess, culture and society and teachings and the world started to become more known to me and ideas and beliefs, you name it, I somehow got lost in this idea that my purpose was everything, it had everything to do with what I did rather than who I was. And that made me get stuck and it made me feel miserable. And then it contributed to a lot of negative areas of my life, such as going through depression, going through anxiety, panic attacks, and then just going through a ton of grief and then feeling like I was worthless. So I completely understand that. But then when I did, like you did, sit down and start asking myself those really, really tough questions. Okay, well, who am I? What do I really want? What's my purpose? There was then I realized that who I am, I was born with a purpose already. I was created with a purpose and that purpose is to be alive and to live. And that is enough. Well, that should be enough. And then I take who I am into what I do and not the other way around. So I think that's a beautiful like intersection and understanding of spirituality because that's what God intended it to be. I believe or the universe or whatever uh, name that you want to give him like that's or, or it or she whatever 
that is like the beautiful connection I find. So beautifully put, so beautifully put. And I really resonate with your notion that by being wholly authentic and who we were endowed to be in this moment with presence, with love, what is to unfold who knows, right? It's a surprise. Often it's a joyous, magnificent surprise. Sometimes it, there's a few hiccups in the road, but they're all about discovery. Yeah. Um, but, but that showing up in a sacred way of being, which is wholly present in a state of love and interest and presence, the road unfolds before us. Mm. And I don't need to know where I'm going. I have absolutely no idea. I, I have no two-year plan. I actually don't even have a six-month plan, but I know a deep way of being in my heart that is true. And all else unfolds from there. It's just, I relate so deeply to what you're saying. The idea that you were touching on just a moment ago of every child is is spiritual and they have that understanding. So what happens to a, a child that they end up losing it? Is it mainly because of uh, society and cultural teachings or is there something more to it than that? So I'm so glad you asked that. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to throw in a few notes of science here too. Because some people feel more persuaded if I bring in the science. Okay? I love it. <laughs> I'm going to share with you two notes of science that prove beyond any doubt whatsoever that we as children are innately spiritual beings. Mm-hmm. And that's every single one of us. The first note is if we look through twin studies, we can look at twins raised together, twins raised apart, and factor out commonality as a function of shared genes and shared environment. So our temperament, whether we're outgoing or introverted, whether we're high strung or laid back, that is 50-50. It's half innate and it's half socialized. So if you think of a really anxious baby, well, you can soothe the baby and he or she comes to be a little bit more at ease and then in time soothes him or herself. Well, similarly, the capacity through which we experience transcendence, that I can see whether it's God's presence in you or that which is sacred, holy, transcendent in you, whatever my language might be, that you are more than skin and bones, right? There is an ultimate worth and being in you. That capacity is one third innate. So we all have this. But by the time we're 30, it is two thirds environmentally formed, which means that our parents and grandparents and the 10,000 passing exchanges by the locker in high school all weigh in to shape this natural spiritual endowment. Well, that's enough, two thirds environmental to really let the spiritual core lay atrophy if there's nothing there. But if there is what you described in childhood, some language and expression and you know, whether it's a, a prayer or a meditation or a ceremony or a, just living life with spiritual values, that two thirds is on, it's there, it's built for life. So even if we walk away in hard times or go through a discovery process where you know, it's very natural in adolescence or young adulthood to follow the story you and I just told, kind of ditch the whole thing, right? The roads are paved to get back. Yeah. Is right. So that is evidence point number one. Every child is a naturally spiritual child as evidenced through twin studies. The second point is that psychologists have identified what they call implicit spiritual cognition, which is a way of seeing life in every child. And I'll give you two examples. Every child perceives, not this is not beliefs, naturally perceives continuity of spirit, continuity of consciousness after death unless socialized out of it. 
Okay. Every child naturally perceives, not believes, perceives that we can know without being told. We don't need to hear it through our five senses. We don't need to see it or hear a story to know something. We have direct access because all information is in the consciousness field, right? Or God can inspire us without being told by another human. So these are two examples. Well, what do we do? Yeah, I invite you and our friends to think back to kindergarten. Okay, what was the first thing that happened in kindergarten? The first thing I saw was a planner on my desk. And I was told that my job was to dutifully get out of this moment and think about the future. Right. <laughs> the next thing I learned, maybe about third grade, was that if I had an idea, I had to point on the paper to just how I knew that. Where in the text does it say that? How can you justify this? Right. I was taught that the only way to know things was to have been told or read them. But the idea that we could have transcendent awareness, you know, it's alive and well in India. Everyone knows you can have transcendent awareness. It yeah. was really educated out of me. Right? And that is a taste of our Western culture. It really can educate us out of our natural transcendent awareness. Mm. Which and that's is a real loss. Service. Yeah. yeah. It's a huge disservice to young people and their ability to grow, develop. Because say, for example, someone doesn't grow up in a spiritual household, then what? Like they're just completely even more lost along the way. So I guess my question to you would be, having said all this, why is having spirituality as part of us as humans, or even just a spiritual practice for that matter, why is all that important? So, so glad you raised that. Okay. Here we could go on and on for days, but I'll hit the big four. Okay. The first is health and wellness. We look at data that is just absolutely conclusive. A young adult who's a standard deviation above as compared to below the mean. So very likely as compared to unlikely to say my personal spirituality is deeply important to me is 80% less likely to be addicted to alcohol or drugs. Wow. It's really rough road in life to fight addiction. And, you know, all of our friends who've been through AA and NA know that a lot of recovery has to do with reigniting our spiritual awareness. So can't we get ahead of that and help young people by building the core, build the ark before it rains, build what is our natural endowment, be the two thirds of environmental embrace onto our natural spiritual core. Mm. So 80% less likely to be addicted. Um, you know, the epidemic of our time, and this is very serious, is suicide, right? A young adult, a high schooler in the, in the U.S. is more likely to die by suicide than a car crash. Number one killer of youth, okay? We are 62% less likely to take our own life and 82% less likely to take our life if spirituality is shared. So if I simply have a personal spirituality, I'm two thirds less likely to take my life. If I share that and we talk about it and it becomes part of our lives together, the we and the us of our friendship or our workplace or our classroom or our boardroom, wherever we come together, if we, you know, can see and know each other in this deeper way that we are brothers and sisters that, you know, life is not a blank slate. There's certain moral codes written into life. Like you just can't harm people or it'll boomerang back. Harm is real, right? We live in a moral spiritual universe. And when we see that 
we are much happier, more connected and less addicted, less depressed and less at risk even for suicide. Okay, health and wellness reason number one. Number two, the upside. So the character strengths and virtues that give us might like grit and determination and optimism, all of those actually go hand in hand more deeply with spiritual awareness. When we look through science, we see that if I understand life to be in relationship to God or some ultimate presence of, you know, whether I say Jesus or the universe or that life itself is simply sacred, right? Then, of course, I'm less likely to quit the minute things go wrong. Right. And if instead of looking at myself, you know, think of the hard work of coming of age, who are you? I mean, we might even invite people to think, who are you? Yeah. Well, there's two answers to the question. Who are you? I am, you know, particularly clever and good in the world. I have my own podcast, right? Or I am a spiritual being who is endowed with these gifts through which I form my own podcast, right? Now, number one it is true. That's right. But number two is much deeper yeah. and more true. And it actually leads to a life of far more contribution when we understand ourselves as giving in an ultimate way, a purpose, a calling mm. through our gifts, right? And when things go wrong, you know, okay, a rough day, it's not the end of the world. It's noise on the trajectory of, of a purposeful life with calling, right? So that's one is health and wellness, two is the upside. We're actually more effective and we have bigger lives with more meaning and purpose, right? And then the third is that, you know, life, when we use our innate transcendent capacity, this one third innate gift hardwired into us becomes 10,000 fold more fascinating. Mm -hmm. It becomes a much bigger, more inspired life. And so, whereas we could say, okay, spirituality makes you healthier. It makes you happier. It makes you more successful. What really matters is that life literally expands so that it is robust and different. And that's where we can talk, I think, in a really rich and important way. I think so too. And I like how you, the health and wellness factor for me, just looking at my own life and the the addiction side of things. I know that my addiction or addictions, I should say, took me further and further away because it, it made me believe that like the addiction was the only thing and leaning on anything towards God or like it was all his fault. Like it was not my fault at all. It was all his fault. Like there's someone to blame. And so my addictions just kept, I guess, taking me further and further away from it. And then when I noticed that the deeper I got into the addictions and the worse it got, the worse I felt. Uh, but then when, I chose finally when the light bulb finally went off in my head that I needed to get help, which is another story entirely that I realized that, Hey, I, I need help from, from my God, from him, him to save me from this. Like I need help. I need to bring back those spiritual practices once again. And I am better for it now as a result, like those addictions, I know I'm a, an addict in recovery and I've got all these practices now that I've got to put in place to keep those addictions at bay so they don't stem up. But I like how you mentioned the health and wellness part. I think it's such a, a vital element and all those other aspects that you did mention too, which we can, I would like to dive further into number three, if that's okay with you. Are you able to expand on the third point a little bit more, if that's all right? Sure, yeah. And I, I But I do want to really, you know, 
honor and elevate what you're saying, because very often it is people who have a particularly strong transcendent capacity who can feel and find themselves becoming increasingly addicted. It's the most open, the most transcendent, the most, you know, the artist, mm. right? The, um, the creator, the writer, the musician, the person who is creative and attuned to the universe and more porous and perceptive can be the person who more easily slides into addiction. And so I think that point can't be highlighted enough that if I, if I or someone I know is struggling with addiction right now, that very likely is a deeply spiritual person who needs the companionship, the guidance to walk through this realization, mm. right? That, that this is actually the gift turned upside down. Yeah. Right? And we're not and, saying that spirituality as, as it stands alone is the only thing that can help you get over addiction, but that is a helpful way to manage those addictions so they don't come into your life and take over it is I think what you're trying to say as well. Like, yes. And that AA, you know, let me back up just a bit. You know, scientists don't define spirituality, but we identify threads within lived human spirituality that have an enormous impact on the rest of our life. And just to be super clear, spirituality and religion are not the same thing. For about you know, two thirds of people, they'll say I am spiritual and I am religious. My spiritual life is held in my faith tradition, the prayers, the ceremony, the text. But 30% of millennials and more in Gen Z say I am spiritual, but I am not religious. My spirituality is felt with my fellow brothers and sisters in nature, in music and art. So Okay, some people are religious, some aren't. Everyone is born with a natural spirituality. It is innate. But the fact that it's two-thirds socialized means that we get varying degrees of support as we realize our nature. And when science identifies those threads within lived spiritual human life that are game-changing, there really are two. And one is the transcendent capacity to be in a dynamic relationship with whether we say God or the universe, but we are in dialogue with life, mm. the spirit of life. Um, some people say God walks by my side, or I feel I am held up by the universe, or there's a felt sense that our journey in life is not alone. And the second dimension is that our transcendent awareness can be shared so that we know each other as children of God or souls on earth or transcendent beings were again, more than skin and bones. When those two things are in place, no matter what tradition and outside of tradition, we see in an MRI, and we did this, the spirituality, my body is you, Columbia, my colleagues at Yale together found that the same neural correlates run in all of us, whether we're Hindu, Jewish, Muslim, spiritual, but not religious. There's one spiritual brain. I call it the awakened brain. And it's all of ours when we run it. And that's a choice, right? But when we do run it, how does life unfold? It unfolds as having an entirely different dimension. It's like the story of Plato's cave. We were looking at two dimensions and suddenly saw three, but we were looking at three dimensions, skin and bones, and suddenly we saw four. That life is in fact dynamic and guided, that we are never alone, that we are hardwired to see that we are guided, literally hardwired to see that we are guided by the universe, guided by God. We're hardwired to see that we are loved and held. So even right now, if I'm on lockdown and I'm depressed and I'm feeling totally cordoned off in my apartment, 
And physically, I'm alone. At the deeper level, you are not alone. You are still in this moment, the second part of the family of life, part of the field, the spiritual field of all life. We are never alone and we are always loved and held. That's just the truth that we are built to see. So loved and held, guided and never alone. That's transcendent awareness. What does AA do? What does NA do? It allows us to take this deep awareness and show up for one another so that no one should feel alone so that no one should feel abandoned, not held. And so that everyone knows we are guided, the sponsor, the community. In our darkest hour, we are there for each other with love. You are so much more. I am so much more. Everyone is so much more than what we've just succeeded or failed in doing. That's just an outcome. That's not who we are, right? Everyone is so much more than what we have or don't have. I could have $10 million. I could be in debt. doesn't matter. I am so much more than that. So that I, the AAI, the NAI is a spiritual I. It's the second factor that scientists have found that we see transcendence. We see God's presence in one another and we show up to be loving, holding, guiding and never leave anyone alone. AANA, that is a spiritual embodiment. And a lot of faith communities have that too, but it's just too bad that we have to live so hard in order to get there because we didn't get supported in the first place. But the good news is that if we do crash and burn, the spiritual opportunity is immense. That the greatest suffering is an invitation for a deepening of spiritual life that doesn't just put us at baseline, but makes us particularly open to spirit, that makes us particularly loving of one another. I mean, the greatest artists, the greatest contributors are people who've suffered, broken through, deepened their spiritual life. And even when I get one more science fact, do you mind? Please. Yeah, I love it. Okay. If you take, if you, if someone generously shares of their life and we saw this in our lab, they've been through suffering, they've been through depression, they've been through addiction, they've hit the bottom and in their darkest hour, God, what do you want from me? It's like Jonah and the whale in their darkest hour. Does my life have any value in their darkest hour? Is there any sign of God's presence and the illumination comes and suddenly I saw light in the leaves and suddenly a man came up to me and said, you look just radiant. And suddenly, and suddenly something is revealed. People break through and their transcendence is found. That person has a form of transcendence that endures throughout life. And in fact, that awareness, that breakthrough to God's presence, to the transcendent truth of, of life makes us 75% less likely to get depressed. And that goes up to 90% if we're in high risk situations, like maybe genetically predisposed or in tough times, like now with COVID. So the breakthrough that comes through suffering, the invitation, darkness to the light, transforms us in a way where we are so much more inside. We're spiritual beings and we are girded against subsequent depressions. And we are by living humbly and truthfully teaching a way of living to people who share the road. There is so much that I want to ask you from that. (laughs) You explained it brilliantly, by the way. Um, I'm curious, like for my audience, like giving them a little bit of context before we go even deeper, if that's okay with you. How did you get this interest in in the, the connection between science and spirituality? Because not a lot of scientists, if any, do this at all. Like they don't 
look at scientifically and spirituality as, as a connection. So what got you interested in it? So indeed, it has been for 25 years, my life's work as a scientist, um, since I was really just starting out as a postdoc, but how and why, right? So I'll share with you a story. I was a young intern. I was probably about 25. I was on a 25, 26 on an inpatient unit in New York City. And the inpatient unit um, was filled with well-intentioned, kind psychologists and psychiatrists. Everyone was a good guy, right? But the models of our time were simply not helping people. And how do I know that? Well, at that point, if you looked at the thickness of someone's file, files weren't digitized, they were paper. You know, someone might come once to the inpatient unit with deep suffering and his file is an inch, right? Mm -hmm. Well, these files, six inches, 10 inches, sometimes they'd get so full, a second file and a third file was started. People would be admitted eight, 10, 15 times to this inpatient unit, round and round, the revolving door, we called it. Mm. So whatever we were doing, as well-intentioned as we might be, the traditional mental health models were not helping people in deep despair, mm. people with deep major depression, people with depression and addiction, schizophrenia, whatever they were there for, they weren't being helped. But once the patients saw that there was interest, mm. They would say, Dr. Miller, can you come here? And come here meant like not sit in the office. Come here meant, can you come with me through the kitchen? Where are we going? Through the pantry. What? To the back pots and pans room. Dr. Miller here, far from where we can be seen. Will you pray with me? So there was a hunger of the heart to connect with God. Dr. Miller, Dr. Miller, I'm going to be sent away from this revolving door city hospital upstate where people basically, it was a goodbye. They lost their freedom for life, like a death sentence of our freedom. Dr. Mel, I'm going to upstate tomorrow. Before I go, will you pray with me? Okay, I, I don't happen to be Catholic, but this patient was, and she pulled out her rosary and she could have cared less whether or not I was Catholic. Remember religion and spirituality are not the same thing. She felt our common spiritual heart, our universal same spiritual awareness. And she went through her rosary. And at the end, Dr. Miller, I'm going to pray. Will you join me? And she prayed that she'd be safe upstate. And then here's this woman about to lose her freedom for the rest of her life. Dear God, protect me, protect me upstate. And dear God, watch over Dr. Miller. I mean, to this day, it moves me that she was losing her freedom. And I was going back to my apartment on the Upper West Side to have a cocktail with my husband. It was the most unbelievably unequal moment. And she was praying for me as much as she, this was a woman who suffered. And you know, one story after the next, one other fellow, he pulled me behind the door in his little gurney, you know, like way behind the door so no one could see us. The consistent theme being that they felt they had to hide their spiritual life. Patients felt we don't talk about this here. And here this fellow who had eight times been admitted to the inpatient unit said, Dr. Miller, I've got to tell you something. People don't understand what I have in schizophrenia. You got to understand there's the world, capital T, and the world, little t. And when things just get really painful in the little T, the world, the everyday, the common day world, and I just can't take it anymore, then I jump over to the world, capital T, 
where Mother Mary is my mother and I am Jesus. He's telling me that he's moving me between levels of consciousness to protect him against pain. He was perfectly aware he had his hand on the gear shift, moving out of a material reality to a transcendent sacred reality, but he wasn't doing it in step with the rest of the crowd. Mm. So this, the patients were telling me my spiritual core is at the center of my recovery. My spiritual core is lost and hidden. And I don't, I, we have to sit here with the pots and pans are behind the door because it's not allowed to see the light of day in the mental health system. And I thought we in the mental health system are making people worse. We are making them sicker than they would have by disintegrating the spiritual core from all else. You know, iatrogenic harm in medicine is when you walk in with a broken elbow and you leave with TB, you're worse. We were, this was iatrogenic harm. And so my life's work became about putting the spiritual core back into the whole person for health, renewal, treatment, and ultimately flourishing. Have you seen change in the mental health system nowadays? So starting in the late 90s, there were these first few scientific articles from my lab and in turn other labs joined in. And we now have hundreds of peer review scientific articles that show beyond a shadow of a doubt, we are all spiritual beings, that when that is supported and integrated, we are protected against the most prevalent dogging forms of despair, addiction, depression, and even suicide. We also know through the science that when spirituality is integrated into treatment, so no more pots and pans room and no more behind the door, that there is a broader reaching form of renewal, that we don't just ameliorate symptoms, but that people are better than before. Mm. That's a huge improvement. Not bad for 25 years. No, not at all. And you are, I guess, at the center or the heart of all that as well. Like you've written how many peer review journals too that have been published and have been helped out so many doctors and and people like just reading them. And you've got your books too, The Spiritual Child um, and then The Awakened Brain. So I think what you're doing is honestly incredible. It's helping so many people. I mean, I was listening to your conversation with Rich not that, not that long ago and I was just like, inspired honestly by everything that you are doing and giving back into the world so i was like you know what i want to give back <laughs> as well even even more so so thank you so much for for all that you're doing from my heart to yours i guess just it's it's amazing that that's just me being like honest um but you know i want to go a little bit deeper if that's okay with you in into this this idea of looking at uh, spirituality a little bit more. Um, and well, from- let me thank you for your generous, kind words. Thank you. Oh, and I yes. want to highlight that, you know, everyone knows this, but it needs to be said that you indeed have an awakened heart. You are an awakened being. And I'm just so grateful to share this experience. Well, thank you very much for saying that I acknowledge it and I really do appreciate it. Um, I I'm curious about those people that, have stories of going to the other side and then they come back. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you explain that sort of thing? Like, I don't want to take away anyone's story or experience at all, but have you noticed that that is like real or the case looking at science? Is that something that you have looked at? So um, you're getting to something incredibly powerful, which is there's a movement 
that's, you know, it's been around since the dawn of time, but it's gained scientific ground in the past 10, 15 years of consciousness-based reality, consciousness-based scientists. And we might call that post-material science. There's people from psychology, psychiatry, people doing neuroscience who increasingly are looking in this post-material frame at consciousness as being present Mm. in matter, but consciousness also existing independently of matter. So that which is our spirit, our soul, our consciousness exists in and through us, realized, incarnate, right? A spiritual brain is a docking station, if you will, of that consciousness that we see in our MRI studies. And that consciousness can exist independent of the brain. So there's a fellow who's done a great deal of science here, Bruce Grayson, someone who's been a good friend and colleague and has come to our Spirituality Mind, Body Institute. I visited him and he's done some beautiful studies, including one of the few prospective studies where he follows a big group of fellows, all of whom are alive and well, um, before they go into surgery. Mm. And some make it and some don't. And a few of them technically, physically die and come back. And he has then prospectively been able to look at those who die and come back. And what Bruce Grayson has found and what others in the area, you know, many people have been in this space have found is that there's tremendous commonality in people's report of what happens when their body dies. Um, What I think matters to us who are living here now is that how do we honor ourselves as emanations of consciousness that we're like rays of the sun, whether we say of God's being or fabric of life or of the universe, whatever our language or model is that, you know, here you said you are a ray of sun from God's being, you're an emanation. And what that means for how we know and love each other, right? So right now we're in a really problematic social upheaval. Right. We have people at each other. And part of the reason is that we've lost sight of this great unit of truth that we're all emanations of the same sun. Right. And certainly we take expression. We are a point and we are part of this wave as a point. We are unique. We're magnificently diverse and we live at different GPS coordinates and we're men and women and we're gay and straight. And we're all these different things that are fabulous. Right. And we are part of one human family. We are one field of life. We've got to hold both because if you tell me your story from a different GPS coordinate, a different bio body suit, I want to know you and my capacity to really know you and and understand what you're sharing, the good and the difficult and the painful and the true is through our common human heart, through this common unitive oneness, right? And similarly, you know, if we only have unit of oneness, then I don't get to hear about your uniqueness and the, you know, journey in life. But if we only have difference, then it's just a very splintered power grab. And then how are we going to come together? Right. So we've got to reinvigorate society needs a spiritual awakening. And when I say society, I mean, every post-industrial country needs a spiritual renewal, a reawakening of our natural spiritual nature onto one another and how we connect into our journey here. Life is not one that we make. You don't go after what you want and make it happen. Life is a journey of discovery. 
when we're in dialogue with God or this universe. And guess what? We're at it together. We're a journey group. Like everyone in Australia and everyone in the States and everyone in, and everyone in Africa, we're all here together in Asia. We're on this journey group. Yeah. Well, you know, the sooner we realize that we're not controlling everything and we're not in competition with each other, but how fortunate we are to have each other on this quest you know, thank goodness you're good at what you do. You're brilliantly good at what you do so that we can collaborate and you do that piece. You know, um, but, you know, we need each other. And in this magnificent harmony where you're the trombonist and I am the violinist and together we have an orchestra, we can actually get across the bridge. But we will absolutely need to reawaken our unitive consciousness, awaken our brain, our spiritual transcendent birthright if we are going to make it through this era so that we have common connection of the heart and so that we can stop being so over impressed you know i work with the u.s pentagon and there's a general there the chief of chaplains and he points out quite honestly he says you know these are plagues right these are plagues mass disease that's a plague um tidal waves subsuming the earth erratic weather that's a plague Right. These are plagues. Killing of the firstborn will tragically and painfully young people are taking their own lives. These are plagues. The volume is turned up and turned up and turned up until we get it. And so I lean forward to this chief of chaplains of two million people in the U.S. Army. And I said, what is it we're supposed to get? Mm. And he says, well. I think we're a little over impressed with our own might. We have to realize that we are in dialogue with God, that we are emanations of God. We need to, through prayer, meditation, break through and see, dial in with our consciousness to see the deeper nature, the true deep nature of life. That is how we're going to get across this bridge, which is to say survive. And we've got it. We've got it, but we've got to use it. Mm. I think so many people are living in this days, um, just going through the motions of life. They don't enjoy life. They don't, there's so many people just get stuck. And I don't believe, not one ounce of me believes that we were created to just go through the motions, to just be the same person day in and day out. How boring is that? I believe that we were created with a unique purpose to, like I said before, to be alive and to live, but to learn, to grow, to be someone different than yesterday. I mean, that, that is exciting. Like I am, I love saying that I'm a forever learner and I'll never stop learning. I'm one of those curious young people and I never stop. I never want to stop or ever want to stop being curious. And if I have these burning questions, I want to seek those answers. My grandfather used to say to me all the time, if you don't ask, you don't get. And secondly, don't be afraid to ask. But so many people are afraid of that curiosity. They're afraid of the unknown aspects of life. And that's what gets them stuck. That's what robs them of the joys of life. That's, that's what I see at least. So I love this message of you've got to experience life, experience the journey, experience the, the hards, the, or the lows, so to speak. I also say really quickly, I'm going on a little tangent here. Thanks to you. <laughs> you made it happen. <laughs> I'm, I'm on the edge of my chair. Tell me. <laughs> it's, I often equate life to that of a living roller coaster ride. So you've got the steep slopes, the quick downturns, the jagged edges, 
the, the, you know, all those things. So strap yourself in good and tight because it's going to be one hell of a bumpy ride, but enjoy the ride as it comes. That's what I love saying. And hopefully that made sense to you and to those who were listening. Tons of sense. And, you know, what through the lens of science, what I would say is the opposite of awakened is not asleep. Mm. The opposite of awakened is what you described. It's autopilot or being an idol, right? Routinized. But in the awakened brain, which you're using full out, we perceive the curves. And in fact, science shows us that the more awakened we are, the more we're able to perceive both the good and the evil in life. It's when we're on autopilot that we strangely see only the good, but feel really anxious and shut down. But when we're awakened, we're on a quest. We see the good, we see the evil, but we're not as afraid. There's less activation in the amygdala and more perception, literally at the level, primary perception of the occipital cortex. We see more and we're less afraid when we're on a spiritual journey. When we're shut down and idle, we think we only see the good stuff, but everyone's anxious underneath that idleness. Mm. And then we obsess about little things like, you know, is my kid going to go to this school or is he going to go to that school? I mean, the world's on the edge of collapse. Is my kid going to get in? Is my kid going to get in? Yeah. So this is a way of being on the roller coaster where you are in that ride, you know, you're on it and the wind is in your hair and you're whipping around and, you know, sometimes it's thrilling and sometimes it's sickening and sometimes it's beautiful, you know. I'm having a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as as yeah. I go, <laughs> I, yes. don't, I don't mind, even though like as a kid and, and still to this day, I have this somewhat fear of going on actual roller coaster rides, but yet I'm on a roller coaster ride of life. So how funny is that? It's ironic. <laughs> well, actually, you know, it's so interesting you say that because I wrote The Awakened Brain for people in all periods of life, but what the science says, we all are, you know, it's a quarter inch under the surface where all can awaken. But in our 20s and in our 30s, we are particularly good at this. From sort of late adolescence to emerging adulthood, there is an extraordinary, it's actually a hardwired burgeoning from the inside out. It's marked by an increase in the heritable contribution of 50%, like this surge, a biological clock, and we hunger mm. for life's ultimate purpose. And we are interested in knowing the contours and discoveries of life and the heart just jumps for connection and love, right? So from sort of 16, 18, 25, right? That this young adult emergence, we are profoundly good at discovering transcendence. Mm -hmm. And yes, suffering is most likely to come in this period of young adulthood. But what it comes as dressed up as depression is an invitation for this deep dive into, let's go on that roller coaster ride, actually feel it, feel it and know that when you whip around the corner and dive down and the whole time you're held, the whole time you're loved and you're actually on a ride that's guided. It's amazing, isn't it? (laughs) I I could honestly talk to you for hours about this stuff because this fascinates me. And even though I'm not a scientist, even though I failed science, technically speaking, in high school, I have this huge love for it now that I didn't have before. And it's just amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> no other way for me to high um, pixel. You have a high pixel life. I do. And that's a spiritual life. Mm. When we're spiritually present, life has more pixels. It does indeed. You've used your awakened frame. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> you have no idea how glad I am to hear that. Um Dr. Miller, I am mindful of your time. 
I do have a few final questions for you, if that's okay with you. I do want to ask you about is spirituality, this interested me when I heard you talk about it with Rich, but is spirituality just for humans or can it go to other beings too that live? It's my perception that all living beings engage in spirituality. All living beings have transcendent awareness. And in fact, most living beings are more present to what I might call the rhythm in life, the presence, the transcendent presence than humans, because we can get in our own way. We Mm. can close our eyes. We can at moments feel distant from this force of life. But the spiritually engaged brain, when we put an EEG on the back of our head, it vibrates at a specific wavelength, high amplitude alpha. High amplitude alpha goes by another name. It's Schumann's resonance. It's the vibration of life itself from the earth's crest up one mile. So the spiritually engaged human brain vibrates with all life. When we choose to move into an awakened state, we join the family of life. We join the oneness. Animals, I think, are there already, right? And I'm sure many people have experiences where, you know, I've heard beautiful stories where someone lost their cat, you know, 100 miles away and the cat found them, right? People say, oh, my cat has GPS. Well, actually, fellow living beings, animals are dialed into the, to the consciousness field, right? And I'll, I'll share with you, there's many times where simply showing fellow living beings that we're paying attention, a relationship ignites. And I'll share a very, um, I shared some with Rich, I'll share a new one with you. Um, my, My daughter had a beloved little guinea pig. She loved this little guinea pig and they were very close. And tragically, um, he ate the wrong food and we raced to the vet. He was inflamed. He was likely not going to make it. Go into the vet's office and the vet sends us to the waiting room. And there in the waiting room is a magnificent gray parrot, huge, very senior. This parrot had lived many years, but he'd lived his years in this waiting room of the vet's office. Mm. Now, because it is part of our family's life to be in connection with fellow living beings, I turned to the parrot and I said, can you help us? You know, can you help us? And first of all, the parrot was surprised because all day long humans come in and ignore him or they sort of look at him without connecting. So he was, he literally did a double take, like someone's actually connecting, right? And it was very, very, very moving. I stepped outside, I told my daughter, you know, Felix, her little guinea pig, isn't doing very well. We're waiting to see what the doctor can do. I stepped back in. The parrot looked at me, craned his neck over, and went, (laughs) crying. He had seen people cry at the death of their animals over and over, and then he did it again. (laughs) And I realized that Felix had passed, right? And and that was exactly the moment in which Felix had passed. So the parrot, of course, animals tap into the consciousness field. The parrot knew Felix had passed in the other room. But more than that, the parrot, this wise old gray parrot was telling me in a way that he knew I'd understand. It was the mourning he'd seen in humans. Parrots don't cry that way. (laughs) So it it was 
absolutely um, as painful as that moment was, it was not a moment lived in isolation. It was a moment shared in the unity of life with the fellow living beings. And because of that, as painful as this was, and as much as we love little Felix and as devastated as my little girl Lila was, there was a sense that we were loved and held and we were not alone with this and we're still in the family of life. When we live that way, things can be painful, but they're not isolated, alienated, existentially empty, and they're not depressing. Mm -hmm. I can understand that story because I have in the course of my life, I've had three German shepherd dogs and all of them at some point have taught me the value of joy in life. And they've taught me the purity of spirit and just being and presence and all, all these, all these lessons, which I can share so many of and the stories behind them. But there was one instance where my other dog who passed uh, and being able to watch a dog just pass away is a, it's a beautiful, but it's a painful moment at the same time. It's hard to explain unless you've actually been there yourself, but her name was Joy and she, I, her and I were like this, we're like really, really tight, close. And we're at the vet one day, she had ear infections consistently and uh, I just remember sitting next to her and, and she could tell that I was upset. She could feel it. And I had my hand down on the ground towards where her paw was and she gets her paw and she puts it on top of mine and she looks at me as if to say, it's going to be okay. And the amazing thing was that day was okay. And here's the even more amazing part of the story. So as Joy is sitting down just outside of my door here and the vets there we're getting ready to say our final goodbyes everything like that i kneel down beside her and and whisper in her ear please come back to me like don't don't ever leave me and just looking at her eyes like piercing brown eyes looking at me and then not when she was gone I didn't want another dog at all. And then a few weeks later, little Alita Joy comes into our life. And the very moment that I saw her, I kid you not, Dr. Miller, it was as if Joy was saying, I'm here. I'm, I'm going to protect you because Alita chose me. She followed me around and she had the same characteristics when we brought her home in the car. She didn't get all irate. She didn't cry. She was comfortable. She was at peace. So that for me was this beautiful moment of realizing that, hey, Joy hasn't left. She's, she's still here. She's part of Alita Joy. So that's my, my experience and, and being able to see Alita bring the joy back into my life and look after me the way joy did. It's just special. It really is. That's deeply moving. And she found you a promise was made and she a promise was kept. I believe it. <laughs> and that, that bond of your spirit is able to be re-expressed in matter. Yeah. So I'll, I'll share with you that, um, you know, that is a capacity, what the animals teach us 
is a way that we can know one another as humans. And the story that you shared, um, I, I share this in the awakened brain. I, my husband and I struggled for five years praying for children and nobody came. And we went to every single, we went to the best doctor in Boston. We went to the best doctor in Philadelphia and, and tried every form of, you know, assisted IVF and, and nothing worked, nothing worked. And we were really, really despairing. But as this process, and I, I go into it in the awakened brain in much more detail, but effectively as this process of loss and pain, you know, here we had the lives that we wanted, the jobs we wanted, but the only thing we cared about wasn't happening and we couldn't control it. Right? I started noticing helpers and healers along the way. And some were human and some were animals. Yeah. But a very, 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 very sacred presence came in the night and asked me the question as we went through this road of failed IVFs and just depressing. If you got pregnant now, would you adopt? Mm. And I thought, well, that's nice that nice people adopt, but no, not me. No. <laughs> And then I figured you know, farther down this path, I, I started to look at things a little differently as, as spirituality opened up through this suffering mm -hmm. and the presence came back. If you got pregnant, would you adopt? And I thought, well, I'm getting closer. I'm becoming more the type of person that could love greatly a child without it necessarily looking like me or being my husband's. Kid. And then um, through a series of very robust synchronicities, we were guided to a beautiful little boy on the other side of the earth who took my breath away and made me feel like I was on the top of a tsunami with love. I just was in love with this little boy. And the second that I saw this little boy, I became a parent. And that was my spiritual son who I named Isaiah, just a joy I'd never felt. And the presence came that night and said, if you got pregnant now, would you adopt this boy? And I said, absolutely, this is my spiritual son, of course. And after five years and the best doctors and all that, that night we got pregnant naturally. Oh. Right? They are spiritual twins, Isaiah, my beautiful boy from the other side of the earth. And the girl I conceived that same night, Leah. Isaiah and Leah are spiritual twins. So this miracle, right, of... And what was, you know, certainly it was a very sacred experience, but what kept coming to me, what kept coming to me in my mind's eye, which is a way of sort of catching the, the ball and the catcher's mitt of spirituality, our mind's eye, our intuition, the knowing it's, it's not a confusion. I don't think someone's walking across the lawn. It's in my mind's eye. I see this, right? Was the words, a promise was kept, a promise was kept. And the backdrop was two monks in a monastery in Kyoto. The promise was kept. So Leah's born, Isaiah's thrilled, you know, baby, 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 Isaiah's now a year and a half, baby, baby. I take her pictures in the first couple of weeks of life in a tiny little bassinet, you know, and pictures of Leah and Isaiah and pictures of grandma and grandpa and nice, send it in to get developed. I come back and on the top of this very meaningful stack of baby pictures, baby Leah, baby Isaiah, is a monastery, Kyoto. <laughs> I, I, 
you know, on top of my baby pictures was a picture of the monastery in Kyoto where a promise was kept. So it occurred to me that Leah had made sure that Isaiah got here and kept the promise. When you tell me your story, so beautiful, right? Between you and joy, it feels much the same. That the bond and the love of consciousness moves through time and space and materializes in the deepest part of our knowing, we know who each other are. That is amazing. I'm saying amazing a lot because it really is. There's no, like, there's no really other way. Yeah, it's just, it's mind-blowing. Like, this stuff actually happens. And it's funny that you mentioned that your son's name is Isaiah because my life verse, my life Bible verse is from Isaiah. It's Isaiah, Isaiah 40 verse 31. So that name. Trust in the Lord shall be lifted. That one? That one. That's the one. And <laughs> that's that's across it, our wall. I read it on my journal. Beautiful. Yeah. Would you consider reading that to people for them to all know? Because it's, it's life-changing. Of course. Everyone, everyone knows that this is it for me. But it says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on the wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That's it. Beautiful. That's Beautiful. Amen. Amen. Yes, that is across our wall. Ah. <laughs> How about that? That is honestly, <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> Someone else has got it. Well, and the synchronicity is alive. Something that is deeply at the level of love and consciousness, one thing expressed materially in two different places. You can't make make this stuff up. You really can't. So beautiful and transcendent and alive. And we're living and sharing with everyone a living synchronicity. We are. My goodness. I don't want this conversation to end. (laughs) There's so much to talk about. But Dr. Mill, I do want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for everything that you have shared today, it has been beautiful for me to listen to and to learn from you. My final question for you, this is my all time favorite question. I ask all my guests at the very end. It's a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. I'm going to close my eyes. Okay. imagine. Imagine with me that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll just call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you now on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Well, it would be the verse from Isaiah, which I call in the awakened brain a stance of quest, that we live in dialogue with God, that we are lifted up by God, and that our deepest purpose is fulfilled when we realize this journey. That is a beautiful send-off message. Dr. Miller, thank you so much once again for who you are, for your time. Where can people connect with you and, and get a copy of your new book? Oh, thank you. The Awakened Brain. The Awakened Brain. And, and this was really, this was a very meaningful treasure. Thank you. really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, 
motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.